0: from Co. Media. Coming up on the show. And I think that, again, the biggest way that this changes my practice is to just have that much more empathy for what our patients and our providers go through together. And so I'm, I'm really hoping that once we can get through some of the severity of this and have more of it behind us, I really do think that as a system, we'll be able to look back and not just think about what needs to change, but how proud we are of how we stepped up and saved a lot of people, I think.
1: Well, we continue with our special Johns Hopkins series focused on practitioners and processes on the absolute cutting edge of medicine. This episode, we're exploring an aspect of care that goes well beyond the types of physical medical care that comes to mind when thinking of treatments for severe illness or injury. One of the reasons that Johns Hopkins is among the highest regarded healthcare institutions in the country is that they treat the whole patient, not just the physical, but also the mind, the psyche, the emotions of a patient, and the journey to recovery. Today, you'll meet another Johns Hopkins specialist, but this doctor brings us the edge of the art in patient psychological care. This is medicine we're still practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. First, of course, my co host, the quadruple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, and my very best friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How you doing, Steve? Hey, Bill. Good to see you. Nice to see you. Looking forward to seeing you in person very soon, huh? Right around the corner, it sounds like. Our special guest, Dr. Megan Hosey, is an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. She specializes in helping patients adjust to chronic illness, Critical illness, critical illness survivorship, acute and chronic pain management, neuropsychological assessment and rehabilitation, fatigue management, and health psychology intervention. Welcome, Megan. It's nice to have you here.
0: It's great to be here. Thanks so much.
1: So, Megan, do you mind if we get to attack some of the unique situations that COVID has brought us? Because I'd be interested in some of the new challenges that COVID has brought your work.
0: Yeah, sure. So, Just to give you a framework for what I usually get to do, I usually get to work in our medical intensive care unit where our patients are mechanically ventilated, They may be on medications keeping them alive, things like vasopressors, and of course they need life support that might help other end organ function like kidneys, etc. I get called in to work with the team when we have patients who are coping with anxiety, delirium, hospital demoralization, any of these things that might get in the way of their participation with the medical team or with their rehab engagements. And in the wake of COVID, things have been different in a few ways. So, of course, we have everyone taking on and off this PPE, and that can be quite scary for patients. I know in some of your previous podcasts, you might have been talking with my colleagues about ICU delirium. Just as a refresher, this is these changes in attention, increases in hallucinations and delusions that patients might have as a result of things like infection, medications, just being in a bizarre hospital environment. So anytime we're walking in for these patients in this bizarre PPE, we've been finding that a really important tweak is to remind people what it is along with the general reorientation that we're doing. So, for example, we'll tell people where they are, why they're there, and we'll say, I'm wearing these masks, and that's to protect us from infection, for example. Because patients having hallucinations and delusions won't really understand what that is.
2: And that, that actually is very counterproductive, right? I mean, you're already hallucinatory and delusional, and suddenly somebody comes in with a paper or or whatever you're using for your PPE, That would only fuel one's delusion and paranoia, I would assume, at that time, right?
0: We think. It's still very early in the process, so we haven't been able to debrief or talk this through with a lot of our patients. But what we know from previous SARS and H1N1 epidemics is that people do report those hallucinations and delusions in the PPE as well as the isolation are additional risk factors for negative mental health outcomes.
2: Aside from introducing yourself, any other techniques that can give you leverage on a patient who might be half in and half out of reality to help ease their mind and their psyche?
0: I think the main thing that we spend time telling patients is you're at Johns Hopkins, And in the context of conversation, we might say, and now that it's noon at Johns Hopkins, we'll do X and Y and Z. For example, if the nurse is bathing or providing a medication, they'll remind them what they're about to do. They will briefly mention that they're breathing with the help of a vent, because often patients don't really have a sense of what's happening with that. And then finally, a really important one in the wake of COVID is reminding people that their loved ones may not be in the hospital because of the visitor restrictions and letting them know hopefully that all of their loved ones are safe. A common delusion for patients is for them to think that something really terrible has happened to a loved one.
2: You know, I've been in practice for 29 years and I've not seen your position in any hospital I've worked at, and I've worked at several over the years. Naturally, what happens in the academic center is it takes, takes time to filter down to the community and ultimately it should because that's the whole point. And so right now we're in the process of trying to minimize delirium by keeping our patients awake at all times and minimizing sedation. But what we don't have is you, the resource from the psychological support. And so that's something that's being taken care of as best we can by nurses and physicians. So what advice do you have to us who are, we are in this watershed area where we're trying to keep our patients awake, but then how are we going to give them the same kind of support that you're giving when we really don't have those resources?
0: I think that right now, my perception is that we're in a space where we don't give the nurses and docs a whole lot of time to be doing this extra emotional support. So that's a big shift, just from a basic psychological and behavioral perspective. Whenever we ask a person to change their behavior, to stop doing something, we have to give them something else to be able to do instead, right? And so I think, A, B, C, D, E, F model is one of the most common things that we rely on. So involving family, perhaps including things like Zoom, and allowing the family to be a part of the patient's care whenever possible. Again, that providing really basic reorientation for patients who are delirious, ensuring that the environment is conducive as it can be to keeping people alert and awake. So that means the setting matches the time of day. So if it's morning, we have shades open. If it's evening, we're quiet and really promoting sleep. I think that that also means just a mindset that says this person might be having one of the very worst days of their life. And so when they're awake, alert, and potentially not fully engaging with us or sort of what we would say, like refusing or being non-adherent, sort of thinking through with the patients about why that might be and sort of eliciting some ways that we can change that if the patient's not delirious.
1: So getting back to a place that has nurses who have lots of other things to worry about, who do you suggest hop in and try to accomplish some of your recommendations?
0: Well, I think what we're increasingly finding is that a lot of these efforts are what we call transdisciplinary. So just knowing the basics of the ABCDEF bundle is something that can be known and acknowledged team-wide. So if anybody comes into the room and notices this patient hasn't talked to their family member in over 48 hours, or this patient is sort of sitting in the dark and appearing delirious, what are the basic environmental strategies that we can do? I think that that's something that everybody on a care team can start to pick up. My area of research is in looking at self-management protocols, meaning can we teach the patients how to manage their own anxiety, how to ask the questions in a really focused way so that they get the information that they're looking for for their docs? Can we give them ways to do self-monitoring of symptoms as they start to go home to reduce readmission? So we're hoping that partnering with a psychologist can help the patients learn to self-manage. But we need more data on that. And I think once we have the data, then we'll be able to have more places advocate to have a somebody like me that will help from not only a monetary standpoint to help administrators understand why you might need somebody taking care of the mental health aspects of the patient, but but it also would give the teams more confidence that they don't have to feel like they have to do all of these parts, right? As you were mentioning, the nurses are being asked to do more and more things all the time. And so implementing a relaxation strategy or being with the patient for the full course of vent weaning trial is really a lot to ask them. And so what we're starting to say is, can we flesh out the members of the team and make this a more transdisciplinary effort?
2: So what strategies do you implement for patients who are actually in the ICU in terms of anxiety awareness and perhaps self-control versus when they finally get out of the ICU? What is the difference there or are they, are they similar?
0: so there are some differences and of course we can't treat the anxiety until delirium is treated so that's sort of my first step always when i get to meet the patient is to sort of make sure they're not delirious the next step might be to learn about what their life was like before they came to the hospital including if they have any mental health history like depression or anxiety and learning about what they were using to do to help themselves relax or feel like they had control over their environment before so those are all some of the basics. For patients who might be having difficulty liberating from the vent, and if the team thinks that the primary driver of that is anxiety, mostly what we're talking about is distraction. So for people with really acute anxiety in the face of trouble liberating from the vent, we don't work on relaxation techniques. We don't focus on breathing because the paradoxical thing is the more the patient thinks about that, the more scared they get. So we really put into place a plan to do things like Zoom with a family member, to get music going that they really like, to have some other stimulating activity like coloring, any else to get their mind off the breathing until they can liberate from the vent. Once people are liberated from the vent, it becomes a different ball of wax. Then we're talking about breathing retraining, relaxation strategies, and something that we call exposure to overcome anxiety. The exposure is something that I get to partner with physical therapists and sometimes physicians on We acknowledge that the patient is feeling more scared. Getting back to doing stuff after you've had breathing difficulty is inherently scary. We take it bit by bit and say, breathing is going to feel weird. It might feel like you're a bit dizzy or hypotensive, but every day we're going to push it a little harder and you're going to gain your confidence in your body back.
2: What are some of the mistakes that us healthcare workers, physicians, nurses do at the bedside? What are our biggest infractions, if you will, that actually cause your job to be harder and escalate the patient's anxiety as opposed to alleviating?
0: You know, I think that nurses and docs are rarely doing anything specifically wrong. Again, I think that this is some of the environment that pulls for some of the challenges for patients. So anytime we're moving around really fast and doing stuff without incorporating them is a time when we're setting somebody up for anxiety. So for example, anytime we're thinking about placing a catheter, anytime we're thinking about doing trade care, anytime we're thinking about administering a med, on the provider side, this is something that we do day in, day out all the time. But for a patient. This is all brand new. And so anytime we have the opportunity to even do something as simple as next, I'm going to take and then explain whatever the medication is, this is going to help you with X. And then as a result, you'll experience Y. So for example you know, today we're going to help put in a catheter. This is going to help you pee. You know, it's going to feel like a pinch for a second and then you might not notice it after that. You know, these kinds of very simple looping them into whatever we're doing throughout the day can help people stay oriented, stay confident and still feel like they have some control.
1: Well, we're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back with the psychological side of ICU stays with Johns Hopkins, Dr. Megan Hosey.
0: A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media.
2: currently 21 years old, and today
0: I like I'm going to read like magic
1: extended a poem
2: from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take of
1: care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Just your me, voice. Trust me,
2: every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dreams.
1: Your fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She
0: buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second life. Cats don't
1: love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find The beauty that are... of rock climbing is that you can only focus
2: on what's right in life. And so our American life begins.
0: We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time.
1: Okay, we're back with Johns Hopkins doctor Megan Hosey. Megan, let's talk about COVID for a minute. So let's start here with how you managed the family. The fact that you couldn't visit your loved one, you were apart and you needed minute by minute reports on how they were doing and you wanted to interact with them. How did you deal with the stresses on the family?
0: So for me, the families were our most valuable asset. Again, with our patients being more deeply sedated in the early stages of COVID recovery, the families were really our only window to who these folks were before they became ill. It was the case until we opened up our visitor restrictions within the last week or so that I would spend an hour on the phone with families learning about who their loved one was, what they were up to on a day-to-day basis before they came to stay with us and really trying to figure out how can we help this person be more comfortable now that they're with us. So learning about things like what brings them joy, what brings them comfort, what brings them relaxation.
2: From my vantage point, Your work with family, I think, is paramount because the families are equally, sometimes more anxious than the patients are. And they will convey that anxiety unintentionally to their loved one when they talk to them in the ICU or when they Zoom with them in the ICU. So if you can allay the family's fears and concerns enough or instruct them on how to communicate with their loved one that's in the ICU, it's really a game changer. I applaud what you're doing. We need to clone you. And distribute you to multiple hospitals in the area.
0: Well, thank you. I hope that's the case. And I totally agree with what you're saying. Family members, in most instances, so want to advocate for their loved ones, so want them to get the best care possible. And so there are just a few things families do That are very modifiable, I find. So a first one is sometimes patients and families might follow the lead of providers and get really hung up on specific medications or specific lab values and really want to be invested in that when there are other bigger picture issues going on and other different ways they can support the patient. And so in those instances, I might say something like, I know how hard this is. I know you're advocating for your loved one and that this is scary, but for just a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to take off this medicine hat, this physician hat, this nurse hat, and I'm going to ask you to put your wife hat on. Another thing we often see, either if the patient's family member is on Zoom or if they're in person is quizzing. So, you know, the patient might look uncomfortable. And if we haven't done enough coaching for the family to say, look, when we go in, you're going to see X, Y, and Z. And sometimes that means the patient looks breathless or the catheter might not be sitting quite the right way. So they might look like they need adjusting, you know, these types of things. If we don't do that ahead of time, you might see a family member walk in and do something that looks like this. Are you having a hard time breathing? Do you need to get up? Do you need your pillow adjusted? Are your underwear too tight? And then the patient is completely flooded and overwhelmed. So just coaching the family on how to follow the patient's lead, how to keep quiet, calm environment, just knowing that patients follow us. If we're scared, they're gonna be scared. So, us being confident and calm is the number one way to go.
2: What we see is our biggest one of our biggest challenges is Dr. Google, is you have family members who want to control the situation. Yeah. They they know more than we do because they've read it online, and so they have all sorts of a checklist for the physicians. Why are you not doing XYZ? It says online you're supposed to be, which is fine for them to question me as a physician. I'm okay with that, I'm happy to feel those questions. But oftentimes, well-meaning, they'll say to the patient lying in the bed, your doctor is doing the wrong thing because I just read it online. You're, he's supposed to be doing X, Y, Z. How unnerving is that for a patient lying in bed thinking that they're with a healthcare system that's ignoring what needs to be done?
0: Yeah. In those situations, I think exactly like what you're saying. I'm happy to take any questions you have. And I want us to think together about how to help your loved one feel the most comfortable in this situation. Some of this stuff is in their control, like when they get up for PT, when they do oral care. Some of this stuff is not in their control. And so if we kind of let them have control over the things that they can and sort of shield them from this other stuff that's not in their control, we think that that's going to be better for their mental health outcomes and for their ability to sort of work with us as we move forward.
1: How important is injecting or helping to inject a positive attitude into the patient?
0: So... From my perspective, it's not as important for the patient to have a positive attitude. I think the most important thing that a patient should have is a set of goals and a team of people who can sort of help them strive towards the goals. And Positive attitudes are things that kind of come and go throughout hospitalization. It's totally normal if a patient feels really great about where they're at one day, have a medical backslide and feel a little bit pessimistic the next day. I think that that's totally part of the process. The most important thing I think to help people cope, again, is to just listen to where they're trying to get to and make sure that we're doing everything in our power to get them to that outcome or to that goal.
2: You know, I think an adjunct to that, what, what I actually learned when my father developed cancer now 20 some odd years ago, and I was going to give him honestly, this is what you have, this are the statistics. And I could see the color drain from his face. And my mother look at me and I realized what was missing from me trying to be honest was I was taking away all hope. And what you're, I think, getting at, Bill, is positive attitudes are going to come and go, right? You're going to have good days, bad days, discouraging days at the bottom line of the whole thing, I think it's important that patients feel hope and that you are able to convey to them that you, yeah, today we we backslid, but don't let that take you down a rabbit hole. This is normal. You know, you're going to get better and worse, better and worse in sort of an undulating, oscillating fashion until we get to the finish line and you will get to the finish line. Obviously, you don't say these things if it's clear that there is no hope. You don't want to mislead patients. You don't want to do that. But one can't know for sure on your patients, even if they're on multiple pressors and their kidneys are failing, there's still reason for hope. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in the ICU doing what we're doing. And it's important, I think, to continually communicate the fact that we are hopeful, that we have seen people worse than you who are walking around today and living normal lives. And that's what we're going to get you to. That's our goal is to take you there. You can't take away that hope that we all feel as practitioners.
1: So, Megan, during the year and change of COVID, how did you deal with the idea that a patient was watching television and they were watching mortality rates and sometimes commentators on TV who really didn't know what they were talking about and the patient either losing hope or let's be honest, there were people who weren't in the hospital and they coughed and they suddenly said, oh, I'm going to die of COVID. So, you know, now you multiply this time, someone who's actually in the ICU, you know, they're watching CNN with all the numbers on the right hand side. And all of a sudden you're competing with the media for the attention of the patient. Was that happening a lot during the process?
0: This is triggering a memory of of May for me. So I remember one of our amazing nurse practitioners in the medical intensive care unit saying there was a period of time where, you know, we were calling it fall off a cliff, right? They were managing at home, managing at home. And then all of a sudden they were in the ED. And they were being intubated with us. And it would happen within hours. So we were having series of patients who were sedated for longer periods of time, were starting to wake up. And we were having conversations with them that, you know, you've been in the hospital for this long You're now a bit weak physically and we're helping you train to get off the vent. So they would be having these very strong reactions to how long they'd been sedated. How did I even wind up here? And there were a couple of points where the nurse practitioner said, people are panicking when they When we tell them that they're here because of COVID, like they didn't do this, but there were points where the nurse practitioners were saying, is is it worse to tell them that they're here because of COVID? So it was scary for a while. And what I will say is that really quickly, once people were coming off the sedation, were recovering, we were pretty able to say like, we think you're stable and you're going to have a good outcome. In a lot of those situations, we saw a lot of, I think I would call it like a double-edged sword. So we saw a lot of gratitude in patients just going, "I I was one of the few who made it in these early days. And the other side of the sword was a bit of survivor's guilt I think like what made me so lucky why did I get to make it especially in the early days again we're seeing this less now but where we would have multiple family members affected and perhaps one died and one didn't
2: Dr. Hosey how has this changed your life and and your perspective on practice and are you suffering do you feel any PTSD from what you've been through for the past year
0: I've never seen anything like this ever <laughs> and I think the way that it's changed my life is I feel very grateful for the medical system that I work in. I'm very inspired by all of the practitioners that I get to work with. I mean, people who in the early days said I might be negatively affected by this, but I'm going to put on my PPE and I'm going to do the best I can anyway. That's very inspiring. I think the way that it changes my practice in that it deepens some of the things that we already knew how vulnerable it can feel to be in the hospital how somebody's prognosis or trajectory can change in a day On, in either direction I think these are things we knew already but have seen so much more of it now I think your your final question was about PTSD I mean I would say in May and June I was having some irritability and I was having some dreams about my patients and their families. And I think the things that made it easiest to cope with were my colleagues. So I have a bunch of psychologist colleagues. I have Dale Needham and Marty Brodsky, who you've had the opportunity to talk to already. So and all of the colleagues in the MICU. So having that contingent of people made it really OK to like unpack, knowing that there were other people who sort of understood what was happening and and be able to talk to them about it made it better. What made it harder at that time, though I think all of this is getting easier, what made it harder at that time was to go to work and see the things we were seeing and hear the things we were hearing and then have loved ones or family members kind of say, well, is it really that big a deal? is this really as hard as everyone says it is? But I think that there was some real scary early days, but I think I'm okay now. And people like Dr. Tabak know how to treat this so much better than we did in the beginning. At least here at Hopkins, we now have a funnel of support to to pass our patients along to our post-acute COVID team can catch patients on the other side, which makes us feel a little bit more confident about their recoveries. And I think that, again, the biggest way that this changes my practice is to just have that much more empathy for what our patients and our providers go through together. And so I'm I'm really hoping that once we can get through some of the severity of this and have more of it behind us, I really do think that as a system, we'll be able to look back and not just think about what need to change, but how proud we are of how we stepped up and saved a lot of people, I think.
2: You know, I, I just spoke a little bit to our, our medical staff and our nursing staff. And I think that was one of the things that really impressed me the most is, I mean, I always make the comparison to, to the military and you're, there's some training about being a you know, forward deployed we had no training. You know, one day you're, you're on your couch watching TV and you're enjoying your life with your family. And then suddenly you're at war and nobody asked you, but you are on the front lines. Certainly the nursing staff is amazing to me how they just stepped up, put their PPE on, stayed at the bedside. I'm at doctors and we, we jump in the room and out of the room, you know, quickly. The nurses are there feeding patients 20 minutes, 30 minutes, And they're just accepting the realities and accepting the risks and taking care of people like they always do. And and you do get this renewed and heightened
1: sense of respect and admiration for the people that that you work with. Let me ask you this. After some major battles in a war, one of the things that the VA has to deal with is PTSD. Sometimes a year or years later, when it really hits, who's going to take care of the healthcare workers? And focus on making sure that after they return from this battle that they're taken care of.
0: So I want to stay humble about what all this is going to look like. I will say, so if you want to read some interesting stuff on psychological recovery after trauma or potentially traumatic events, there's this guy at Columbia called George Bonanno. And he researches what we call trajectories of recovery, meaning that a certain proportion of patients or people hit a traumatic event, and they had already been kind of struggling, right? So, we would call those people who have chronic challenges. There were a proportion of people who were doing just fine before, and they might persist and be fined during a traumatic event there might be people who take an early hit in their anxiety, depression, PTSD levels, but then sort of normalize. And long story short, his research suggests that the majority of people will return to some sense of, of normalcy and not have PTSD, anxiety, and depression. So the lessons that I take for that from this are, for providers to just be honest with themselves. If you were struggling a little bit before the pandemic, or if you had any inklings towards mental health challenges before, this was probably not gonna help. And so, getting yourself care and acknowledging that and getting the people around you who will support you and not judge you in that is going to be very important, right? So, if you had something before, this probably isn't gonna be super helpful. I say for everybody, if you are. Having trouble with your function, like you're dreading going to work, and that's new. Like, if you never dreaded going to work before, and that persists six months after this is sort of more behind us, that's something to talk to somebody about. If you are having lots of trouble in your relationship in the wake of all of this, that's something to talk to your partner and potentially get some help about. Just again, if it's really impacting an important part of your life in a negative way, get help.
2: I think that's great advice because, you know, we still live in a culture where, you know, just suck it up and stiff upper lip and go do what you're supposed to do. And that doesn't really work here. These are different times. These are probably the the greatest, you know, cultural adversity that we've all been uh, facing and we're facing it together. Getting help probably is not a bad recommendation for most of us.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that that's a you know stressed, anxious, uncertain. I think that those are all extremely normal responses to all of this. Like I mentioned, I mean May and June, I definitely noticed a change in myself and and reached out to help for from some colleagues and and stuff. And get my red flags again, just in case it helps somebody, is that I was I was feeling irritable. <laughs> Um, You know, and that looked like snapping at loved ones that I don't usually and that's not usually me, you know, dreams and um, nightmares about patients and families. That was new and just kind of chronically worrying about this stuff and not being able to put it away. So those were my red flags to kind of reach out for help. And so that's what I would invite folks to do is just if you're looking at your day to day and seeing this is how I don't feel like myself. Or this is the way my loved ones or the people around me have been giving me cues. I think that that's when it might be time to get some help.
1: Dr. Megan Hosey, thank you so much for joining us today. This was enlightening. How can people follow you?
0: Well, I am on Twitter, so you can follow me at Dr. Megan Hosey, PhD.
1: Okay, well, we're trying to inch toward the close of the show, but I've got to ask you for a healthcare provider who doesn't feel comfortable going to their own institution. Do we know of any directions that they can turn for help?
0: I really think going to your own physician is really a good first step. And there are a couple of organizations now that can link medical providers who are struggling in the wake of COVID with a psychotherapist free of service. So I would be happy to send you the links for those.
1: We'll put that on our website as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan Hosey, and of course, to my very best friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak, thank you. Always a pleasure getting a chance to spend time with you, even if it is through these remote methods. I look forward to getting back to our brunches. We're Still Practicing is produced and edited by A.J. Mosley, mastering by Steve Rickyberg. Music for We're Still Practicing is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't have to hunt around for our next episode, and... To all of you in the field of healthcare, thank you for all you've done and all you continue to do. We'll catch you next week, everyone. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.